0: I'm feeling really ambitious today. Thank you, Sharon. I'm glad you're happy for me because I'm happy for me. No, seriously, I'm, I'm all caught up on my sleep. I never knew that losing an hour of sleep could be so detrimental to one's psyche, well-being, whatever else you want to call it. Well, I think I'm all caught up. Are you caught up yet on your sleep? Now, those of you who said, no, if I see you fall asleep this morning, um, sorry, that's not going to cut it. Um, Here's what I mean by I'm feeling ambitious today. I'm going to tackle two chapters in the book of the Revelation this morning. Now, relax. I know the math in your head is going two times what he already does. Oh, no. No, it's not going to be maybe a couple minutes longer. I don't think so. One of the reasons I'm preaching first is so that we don't, uh, bump up against our our normal time frame too much so that we um, give extra difficulty and problems to our, our children's ministry that's going on down the hall. Um, I just really feel in my heart that I want to be done with this series by Memorial Day. Okay, that's a, a nice clean break uh, just before summer starts. And so we're going to do that. Chapter 15 in the book of the Revelation. If you have a Bible, you could turn there. I just want to say this. This is an odd-fitting, bouncing all over the place, somewhat disjointed, all over the map kind of chapter, all right? Have you ever watched a, a painter put the finishing touches on a painting, especially a portrait you know, they'll be, this thing will look just about done to us, and they'll oh they'll do a little on the hair, and oh, that ear's not quite right, and got to fix the shirt, and they just kind of bounce all over the painting. It looks about done, and yet they're jumping all around, putting little touches on this thing before it's finally finished. That's a little bit of what chapter 15 is like. The first verse is a wrap-up of chapter uh, 16, which is, Coming later. And then verses 2 through 4 is a concluding statement to the interlude chapters 12 through 14 that we've looked at. And then it's it's also an introduction to the next part of chapter 15 and what follows in chapter 16. Plus, it's very possible that chapters 15 and 16, in terms of a time sequence, happened before. Chapter 14, are you thoroughly confused? Welcome to the book of the Revelation, huh? So this chapter is a little bit like that. It's just kind of all over everywhere. And how does it fit chronologically? Well, we're not really totally sure. Chapter 14 was the scene of the the Jewish martyrs who were killed during the Great Tribulation and the harvests of the kingdom. A couple different harvests with different... uh, End results. Uh, the harvest into the kingdom of those who are believers in Christ, and the harvest into the wrath of God, for those who never came to that personal faith. Chapter fifteen is called by many the preparation of the bowls of God's wrath. Okay? There's seven bowls of wrath that we're going to look at here in just a minute. It's the third of the three woes that uh, chapters, chapter eleven said were coming to all the earth, the seals, the trumpets. And then finally, the bowls. Um, These seven bowls of wrath are designed to, to first awaken mankind to the reality of God. You can't keep living like this and expect that there is no consequence, no price to pay. God saying, hello, trying to get the world's attention in terms of you can't keep living that way. And also to point out the reality of the final judgment that is indeed coming to this earth for those who do not repent of their worship of the beast and their rebellion against God. So if you'd stand, I'm going to read chapter 15 today, just for the sake of time, we'll have readers for chapter 16, but I'm going to read it and then we'll quickly work our way through it. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had Seven plagues, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had been victorious over the beast and his image, and the number of his name standing on the sea of glass, holding harps. Of God. And they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, for all the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After these things I looked, and the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was opened, and the seven angels who had the seven plagues came out of the temple, clothed in linen, clean and bright, and girded around their chests with golden sashes. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls, full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. You can have a seat. So let's quickly work our way through this chapter, all right? Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous. Remember, we're in the, we're in the section called the, the, the great signs section. And this is kind of the, the wrap-up of some of that. So another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last. Because of them, the wrath of God is finished. Now, it's not poured out yet. All right, that's spoken like it's happened. It hasn't happened, but it's another one of those proleptic verses or, or words that says, I'm speaking of something yet to come as though it's happened because it is a done deal. Is the outpouring of the wrath of God on this world still up in the air? No, it's going to happen. Hasn't happened yet, but it's not flip a coin and gosh, if it all turns back around, it's not going to happen. It's going to happen. And so this is written in a way that says to us, hasn't happened yet, but it will indeed happen. It's going to happen. Chapter 16 is the last and the finish. That is the end But it it doesn't describe all of the wrath of God in terms of every little detail of the wrath of God is going to be listed for us here in the next few chapters. It just more or less picks out the highlights of of what is coming and uh, what is surely coming. And I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire and those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name standing on the sea of glass holding harps of God, When it says here that these were victorious over the beast, that does not mean they conquered or that they defeated the beast. Really, it would probably better read, they did not succumb to the pressure of the beast to worship him, to worship the image, to, to bow their knee to him. They didn't submit. They, in other words, they frustrated the plan of the beast because his plan is to have worldwide worship. And these are those saying, no, I refuse. I'm not going to bow my knee to him. So they're victorious. Yes, their victory, though, however, is martyrdom. But martyrdom, remember, a dot, a speck on the infinite line of eternity. To lose one's life for the cause of Christ may be the end to this life, but is it the end? No. It's just a blip on the screen. The sea of glass is a place that we saw back in chapter 4. It's a place before God's throne and it symbolizes and represents that these martyrs have a special place in the heart of God. Now, I'll be honest with you, knowing that doesn't make me want to be one of them. And if you feel that way too, I think you're okay. You just need to know that there is something special in the heart of God towards these people who would love not their life even to the point of death. Let's keep reading. And they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Now, if you're one who likes to study on your own, write down Exodus 15. Because in Exodus 15, there is one of the places in Scripture known as the Song of Moses. It's the deliverance uh, from Egypt, from their enemies, okay, as they were going through the Red Sea. Um It's also not just about that, but it's also singing a song of deliverance for how God spared them from the plagues. And I've said to you, I think there's a great parallel between chapters uh, 15 and 16 that we're looking at today and the plagues that come out of these bowls of judgment and the story that we read in the book of Exodus, chapters 7 through 12, right right in through through that portion, okay? Now, remember that... uh, As Egypt, excuse me, as as Israel was spared in Egypt from those plagues, I think there's a parallel here. One of the reasons why I believe there will still be Christians on this earth at this point in time, why the rapture hasn't occurred, is because there was a supernatural sovereign sparing by God of his chosen people. They were around for all those plagues, but God spared them in the midst of it. Now, this is one of those points, I will say this over and over and over again, golly, I hope I'm wrong. I hope the rapture's occurred and there's no believers here at that time. That's not how I see it. People a lot smarter than me see it different than me. So, uh, again, that's not a point I argue strongly. It's just my own personal sense. So they're singing the song of Moses. They're also singing the song of the Lamb. We don't find something in Scripture called the song of the Lamb anywhere per se. But I think it is a, a great reminder of the fact that God is multitasking on the earth at this point. There are two things going on. He's got a plan for Israel. He's got a plan for Christians. Israel now comes to faith in Messiah, so technically they're Christians. But it's not like... Either it's the church or it's Israel. God has one great plan to save mankind and it happens in two forms. Jews and Gentiles. Jews and everybody else. Okay? I think this again points to that kind of idea. Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. I think it's a a pretty amazing thing that the martyrs are saying, get this, the martyrs are saying, just and true are all your ways, God. It just cost me my life. As a martyr. But I am here to say that all your ways are right. All your ways are just. All your ways are true. That challenges me. I mean I think if I'm one of those. Will I be able to say that? Or will I think gosh somehow I got a raw deal. I want you to think about that okay. Are you one who can say. If your life is shed for the cause of Christ. Will you be one who can say. Lord even though I gave my life. All your ways are righteous and true. I hope so. I hope so for me. As well, even in death. Now, the, the last point there, all the nations will come and worship before you is not saying there's going to be universal salvation for everybody. That just means that there will be a portion. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation will be a part of that glorious scene before the throne. It's not all the nations, every person being saved, but some from every nation will come to faith in Christ. Okay, let's keep reading. After these things, I looked. The temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was opened seven angels who had the seven plagues came out of the temple clothed in linen cloth uh, clean and bright girded around their chest with golden sashes now there's no temple in heaven Revelation 21:22 tells us there's no temple there God will be there, won't need a temple anymore. I think this is probably referring more to the Tabernacle of Testimony, the place where the Ark of the Covenant was kept, because a reader of this who knew anything about Old Testament history would know that the the place of the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Covenant symbolized God's promise to save his people and judge the lost. And that's what this is all about. God's going to save his own and judge those who refuse to come to him. Okay, finally. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. No one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. These bowls, now this is not a golden bowl, okay? But it's, it's not a pitcher. It's not just to collect things. This bowl was also used... To throw things. The picture of this in the Old Testament when the blood of the the bulls and goats was spilled, it was then sprinkled. And so as we read on, especially in the next chapter, and you see it talking about the blood of the saints and how God in his justice turned around his fair play. You watch the role that blood plays in the next chapter. But it's not just a collecting agency, okay? This judgment is not sitting in a bowl somewhere to sit in a bowl somewhere. These bowls are going to be full of the wrath of God. And they are going to be not tipped over and poured. They are going to be scattered across the dwellers of the earth. Mankind. Those who refuse to come to faith in Jesus. Those who worship the beast all right when it says there at the end no one's able to enter the temple that's that's not a picture of god being unapproachable it's a picture of his glory being so overwhelming and that in this moment nothing else is more important than this final outpouring it's like everything stops while justice is served is justice going to be served someday that's the third time you've said that, Kent. Well, I want to make sure you understand that that is what's coming to this earth. All right, in God's justice, holiness, righteousness, and truth, judgment is coming to this earth. And I love that it says, "This is God who lives forever and ever." Have any of the rest of you ever felt like, man, evil just seems to dominate this world? Do you ever feel that way? Well, when is righteousness going to get a break? When's God's side going to win? We win. Amen. All right. It may look throughout the course of history like evil has been dominating or at different times. It's, it's all about evil and evil's getting its way. But it's not by accident that God here is called the God who lives forever and ever. Because God's will and God's purposes are eternal. Amen. They are eternal, and they will ultimately win out. When? I don't know. But they will. Okay, that sets the stage for chapter 16, and Tim Bebo is going to be our reader today. Here's my microphone. So go home and tell your friends hey, yeah, Tim Bebo read in my church today, and they might think you meant the other guy, but this is the better one, actually. So, Tim, thank you for.
1: Would you kind of kneel as you, (laughs) thank you for helping us today. Then I heard a loud voice. Oh yeah, have everyone stand. Yeah. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth and he became a loathsome and malignant sore on the people who had the mark of the beast and who had worshiped his image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became blood like that of a dead man, and every living thing in the sea died. Then the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the water saying, Righteous are you, you who who were, and Holy One, O Holy One, because you judge these things. For they poured out the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them the blood to drink. They deserve it. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun, and it was given to it to scorch men with fire. Men were scorched with fierce heat, and they blasphemed the name of God, who was the power over these plagues. And they did not repent so as to give him glory. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became darkened, and they gnawed their tongues because of pain, and they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river, the Euphrates, and its water was dried up, so that the way would be prepared for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, And out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, for they were spirits of demons performing signs, which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God, the almighty behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. And they gathered them together to the place, which in Hebrew is called Harmageddon. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there was a great earthquake such as there had not been since man came to be upon earth. So great an earthquake was it and so mighty. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the Great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of His fierce wrath. And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. And huge hailstorms, about one hundred pounds each, came down from heaven upon men. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of, ha- of the hail, because of its plague was extremely severe. Thanks, Tim. You can have a seat.
0: I just want to say, wow. I mean, it's pretty intense, isn't it? Now, again, as we work our way through this chapter, through these verses, notice the similarities between the seven bowls of judgment and the plagues. From Exodus Chapters Seven through twelve, make a note on the back of your bulletin or somewhere to go home and spend a little time looking at that because it 's amazing when you just see the the clear, clear parallels. These bowls are a lot more severe they 're a lot more widespread, and they are much more intense. Uh, it could be as uh, with Israel and Egypt. Um, there 's a sparing a protection in the midst of these bowls, like I said that to me it 's indicative of the fact that uh, the church has not been raptured out yet and, and here 's a part of the miracle to me. The language is that these bowls it 's not like you know you 've got a, a bowl or a pitcher with a, a, a spick at a point on it that, so you can just pour ever so calculating just the right amount on the right place. The, the language literally is to, to fling what's in the bowl and yet God and who else but God could do this could fling something and have every drop land precisely where it's supposed to land That's, that blows my mind to think about that I mean I try and pour things and I, I can't even pour where I want to pour things when I'm trying to pour something God flings it And it's so precise, it's so accurate. It has the possibility and the potential to land on the dwellers of the earth and not harm one hair on the head of one who is his. Only God could do that, amen? Amen. Only God could do that. And if you just sit there, well, I don't know how that's possible. Welcome to the world of miracles, huh? That's what this is. And it just shows how awesome our God is, how powerful our God is, that he could fling this with absolute precision. That just blows me away to think about it. There's also not just similarity to to the plagues in Egypt from the book of Exodus. I think there's similarity to the seven trumpets that we've already looked at. The bowls are more intense. Uh, One of the differences is the first four trumpets fall on the environment, not mankind directly. But the very first bowl is right on mankind. Now, they're not all on mankind, but the first one lands on those who dwell upon the earth. So, let's work our way through this passage as well. When it's... Applicable, when it's appropriate, I'll give you the reference out of Exodus so that you can go and check this out later if you want to do a little study of this parallel. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. That loud voice could be God himself. A lot of scholars and commentators believe that that is God speaking. I don't know if it is or not, but it sure could be. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and it became a loathsome and malignant sore on the people who had the mark of the beast who worshipped his image. That loathsome, malignant sore is similar to the boils the plague that landed in Egypt, except those were not malignant. This, again, is much more severe. That's Exodus chapter 9, verses 9 and 10, by the way. Who does this fall on? That's a question. Who does this fall on? People with the mark of the beast who worship his image. So once again, this thing is thrown, and yet it's very specific in its target. Now, if Christians are still here, and I think they are. Jews are still here. That's why the distinction is made that this lands on those who have the mark of the beast. That says to me, well, there must be people on the earth that don't have the mark of the beast, or you wouldn't make that kind of distinction. It seems to me as we work our way through this chapter, something else is happening also. Black is getting blacker, white is getting whiter, and the lines of demarcation are becoming clearer and clearer and clearer, are they not? It just heightens to a great degree. Loyalty to one side or the other is very, very distinct at this point in time. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it became blood like that of a dead man, and every living thing in the sea died. There was the waters of the Nile being turned to blood in Exodus chapter 7, verses 17 through 21. Everything died with the seven trumpets, remember a third of the sea became blood and a third of the things died. Now it's all of it and everything dies. Could you imagine for one moment, the stench that will be on the earth at this point in time? See, I've got a bad gag reflex. I do. I do. I, I could not change my kids' diapers growing up. No, not when I was growing up, when they were growing up. And, uh, you know, my wife always thought that was funny until a couple of my kids have the same thing. And then she finally went, I guess it's true. I just, uh, you know, I think I'd almost rather be a martyr and not have to be here for that with, with how that makes me feel. But folks, it's going to be horrendous. I mean, the stench, the decay, the disease, flies, maggots, ugh, it's just going to be Terrible. Now, the next verse, I think, is a very pointed pointed statement in these next couple of verses, rather, regarding God's perfect holiness and his perfect justice. Then the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of waters, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the waters saying, Righteous are you who are And who were, O holy one, because you judge these things, for they poured out the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. Wow. Again, there's a parallel there to the third trumpet in Revelation 8, and it's a repeat of Exodus chapter 7, verses 17 through 21. The, the angel of the waters it, it seems to be through, to me that throughout this story different angels were given different territorial powers we had the angel over the four winds earlier and uh, who held back the four winds we had uh, the angel who had power over fire in chapter 14 for some reason god has assigned angels certain specific powers over specific Elements, But this is a very subtle and yet at the same time incredibly pointed statement that that the revelation is making. They poured out the blood of the saints and the prophets. You have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. Think about what that says for a minute. God is absolutely righteous, absolutely holy, absolutely just. And he gives these people... What they deserve. Grace and mercy. You get what you don't deserve. You don't get what you do deserve. At this point in the story. That's over. And now they get what they do deserve. Because of what they've done. Uh, One commentator that I uh, read. As I was preparing for this. Said people have to choose. You're either going to drink the blood water. Due to the blood of the saints. And the prophets that have been spilled. Or you're going to wear a robe. Dipped in the blood of the lamb. And yet, for some reason, there will still be people on this earth who say, no, I refuse. I can't comprehend that. But as we go on through the story, you'll see that's the response time and time and time again. Okay, let's keep reading. And I heard the altar saying, yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun, and it was given to scorch men with fire. Men were scorched with fierce heat, and they they blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues. And they did not repent so as to give him glory. Now, is the altar speaking? could be. Back in Revelation chapter 6, though, it was the voice of the martyrs who was coming up under the altars. And it, it could be the altar itself, or it would absolutely make sense that it's those martyrs again. Because back in that chapter, chapter 6, those were crying out for vengeance. How long, O Lord, until you, until you avenge our death? And this is the point at which that avenging is absolutely happening. This justice is coming from God. This fourth angel, this fourth bowl, it says is poured out on the sun. And it's going to scorch men with fire, with fierce heat, like like sunstroke. Perhaps the the ozone layer, some of the protective layers in the firmament, in in the airway, is going to be burned up and holes are going to be burned through that so that the sun now has a power to scorch people to burn them and the irony is folks they blaspheme the name of God who has the power over these plagues says they knew who was behind this they were not for one moment going how could this be happening what's going on the heat is literally killing me they're not why the blankety-blank is this happening They're saying, God, you're doing this and I hate you all the more. You need to repent. I refuse to repent. I would rather go to hell than worship you. And they get what they deserve. Does God take pleasure in that? No. God, God is not willing that any should perish. God takes no pleasure in the destruction of the ungodly. It's in the Bible. But when someone is that... Obstinate and obtuse that they refuse to turn from their wicked ways and give him glory, they're getting what they're asking for. Let's keep reading. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became darkened. And they gnawed their tongues because of pain, and they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent. Of their deeds. This fifth bowl, folks, is loaded with symbolism and parallels back earlier in the stories of, of Scripture. Uh, this, this bowl being poured out on the throne of the beast, I don't think it's literally a throne or literally a place. I think it's symbolic of the world system and the world power and reign and sovereignty of the beast on the earth. At this point in time, his power and sovereignty and reign over his followers. This one has a great great parallel though to Exodus chapter 10 verses 21 through 23 where one of the plagues was a thick darkness that came over the earth it says in um, in the scriptures that it was a darkness that was felt could you imagine a darkness that that is so dark and thick that you you could feel it it's it's like something we we can't even imagine it is so dark and i think Within that darkness is a picture and a reminder that they are so separate from God. Because God is light. And this is a darkness so dark you can feel it. Back in the story in the book of Exodus, one of the things that uh, they've studied was that Pharaoh thought himself to be uh, an incarnation or a living being who was the sun god, Ra, R-A, Ra. Wouldn't that be interesting if this plague of darkness comes out because the Antichrist now is saying, well, I'm the incarnation of God also. God says to the angel, oh yeah? Go show them what that's all about. And this absolute darkness is poured out on the one and his kingdom and his followers who think that he is God. He is now the light of the world. Small l light. And God just counters that with something so palpable, so, so real, so tangible that you could feel this darkness. They nod their tongues because of the pain partly from the previous bowls that have been poured out, the malignant sores and all that stuff. But also, I think part of it is because of their separation from God. A preview of what was coming to them if they would not repent. Do you remember the words of Jesus several places in the Gospel of Matthew? He's going to cast people into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing, gnawing of teeth, of tongues. Folks, I love the fact that when we study the Revelation, we're not just going into one book and trying to understand it. The Bible from cover to cover speaks the same language, doesn't it? It's a message that's in here from page to page to page. It's, it's so harmonious and it's so all connects together. This plague is saying to these people, you're trying to set up a kingdom here on earth and you know where it's eventually going to lead you? to the kingdom of darkness, to an eternity separated from God in absolute darkness where there will be pain and suffering and sorrow that you can't even imagine. But here is a preview of coming attractions. Is this what you really want? Is this, what you, is this where you want to spend eternity? Not literally in that place, but in those circumstances where there's a darkness so bad and terrible and malignant and evil and awful that you can feel it? And you will be so painfully, acutely aware of your separation from God? Really? And they still refuse to repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river, the Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way would be prepared for the kings from the east. This bowl is a little bit different, okay? It's not a plague on mankind or upon the earth. This this bowl contains a preparatory work. And if you study scripture and read throughout the Old Testament, you'll find that when water dried up, or when a, a river or a sea or somehow when water dried up, it had a twofold purpose and meaning. It was judgment or punishment against ungodly behavior or ungodly people, sort of like a famine. There'd also be a drought. But there were also times when water drying up was a sign of deliverance. Remember the Red Sea? Whoosh, dried up for a while. Until the Egyptians started to go back through and boom, that was that. But there's a 2 a twofold meaning, a dual purpose in this, folks. This, this uh, bowl being poured out and the Euphrates drying up is a statement of judgment coming and deliverance coming. And we know who's who, don't we? Hallelujah, we do. The Euphrates, it, it could literally be the Euphrates River um, because where the Euphrates is situated is a clear pay, place and path where in that final great battle that's going to take place at Armageddon, armies will come out of the east and out of the north, Russia, Iraq, Iran, Syria, Syria. So for that to be dried up could speak of a clearer, easier access down to Israel and to where this battle is going to take place. Um, but it also could be symbolic, as I think Babylon is symbolic, okay? Uh, the world's anti-God system is going to gather here in this place for this great battle against the Messiah. Um, the kings of the east, probably symbolic of, again, pagan forces, anti-God forces, um, Being the fact that they're from the east, it could have an Islamic specific reference to it in terms of some of the great enemy that's coming against uh, the Messiah and his people. But do not for a moment make this all about the Arab world or the Islamic world. They are a part of the faction that rises up against God. They are not it. Okay? And it's easy for us sometimes to want to find out who the enemy is, pinpoint him, put all our focus there. As it was not Adolf Hitler back in the 40s, although so many Christians wanted to make him the target and make him it, it's bigger than any one group, okay? Okay? It's the forces of the world, the world system, that will come against Christ and his kingdom. It also could refer to something we're going to look at a little bit later in Revelation chapter 17. There's a, a statement made there about some kings. And I'll read that one for you. Revelation 17, 12 through 14. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. These have one purpose. And they give their power and authority to the beast. These will wage war against the lamb. And the lamb will overcome them because he is lord of lords and king of kings. And those who are with him are called the chosen and the faithful. So these kings talked about here could be those kings referred to in Revelation 17. Again, the purpose is we are all uniting together to wage this war against the lamb. Now, before you get too nervous, you know, because I'm looking at some of you and your eyes are getting real big and you're looking kind of frightened. I particularly like the last sentence in this portion of scripture. These will wage war against the lamb and the lamb will overcome them because he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And those who are with him are called chosen and faithful. Who who wins again? I'm, I'm a little fuzzy. Oh, thank you. We do. All right. Let's keep reading. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. As horrific as that sounds, as terrible as as that is going to be. The first thing that we have to remember, okay? This stuff is not God permitted. It's not God allowed. It is God directed. It is God inspiring it, God causing it to happen. Not just saying, well, okay, God is the one behind this in motivation. God sets these activities of the anti-God, ungodly trinity, as it were, in motion in preparation for this final battle. Folks, the whole demonic horde is going to come together with power with signs to deceive and rally the troops for the war of the great day of God. This demonic horde, they, they work together with and magnify what's already in the hearts that we've seen revealed in the dwellers of the earth. So there, there is some, some trickery, some deception, some deceiving happening, but nobody's going to be innocent in this. It's just playing right along with what we've already seen is in these people already. They refuse to repent. And so when this anti-God, unholy trinity comes forward with signs and power and says, Come on, we're going to go win this thing. It's not like some yokel going, Okay. We've already seen what's in them, okay? And they're going to go right along with this. Because it's already inside of them. Any of you need a reality check right now? Any of you need a little uh, perspective recalibration? We need that sometimes when things get this intense and we go, Oh my gosh, what's going to be going on? I want you to notice something here. It says there that this is a war that's going to happen on the great day of God. It doesn't say that it's a great war on the day of God. It's just a war on the great day of God. What's the emphasis? God. Who wins? God. We do. Because the focus of this is the great day of God, not this great war that's still up for grabs. I wonder who's going to win. We do. Listen to 2 Thessalonians. Chapter 2, verses 7 through 12. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. So we know this is all going on. Only he who now restrains, that's the Holy Spirit, will do so until he's taken out of the way. Not leaves the earth, but he stops restraining the work of the Antichrist and the beast and the false prophet. There's going to be a day coming when that thing's unleashed far more than we see it today. And then the lawless one will be revealed... I love these words. Whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth. And bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders. We've just been reading about that. And with all the deception of wickedness. We've just been reading about that. For those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. And for this reason God will send on them a deluding influence so that they might believe what is false. That doesn't say God takes these poor suckers who had no chance and del- deludes them it says God exposes what's already in their hearts and so they go along with this false power of this unholy trinity because it's already in them to go along with these who are coming for that purpose so he sends this deluding influence so that they might believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but who took pleasure in wickedness you know they say a picture is worth a thousand words you ever hear that saying before I like this one. One word tells the whole story. That might not be a word, but do you get what I'm getting at? Jesus will come again and slay all his enemies. How? With the breath of his mouth. God spoke the universe into being. Is it too far-fetched to think that Jesus will come and go... He's not going to huff and puff and blow their house down. He's going to go, and it's over. So if you sit there nervously going, I wonder who wins. Is it the Antichrist or is it Christ? It's God. That God. And then it's Satan, archangels, demons, angels, two to one, by the way. This, this, this war is not in doubt. It's called the great war. Excuse me, it's called the, the the war on the great day of the Lord because the emphasis is on the Lord and his great victory. Then there's a word to the saints from Jesus himself. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame and they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Har Megidon. He's coming like a thief. Did you ever hear that before anywhere in the Bible? You see, again, repeating themes, not just something, wow, look at that in the Revelation, would you? Repeating themes. First, from Jesus himself in Matthew 24, verses 42 through 44. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day our Lord is coming. But be sure of this. That if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would have not allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour which you do not think he will come. Not as a total surprise. The message here isn't, hey, God's going to try and sneak up on people and catch them not ready. That's what's going to happen to the dwellers of the earth. But that's not what we should expect. We're to be ready. Yes, he's coming like a thief, but we're to be ready. And Paul says this to us that should give us great comfort. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Now as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. Why? Because you should already know. Know what's going on. And that's part of why we're studying this book. So that we're... Ready, so that we know what's going on, so that we can discern the the times, the seasons, not the time, the actual time, but the seasons. We should know what's coming, what's, what's on the way. You have no need for anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While well, they're saying, peace and safety. That's not Christians saying that, by the way. That's the world. That's the world system. That's the Antichrist promising peace and safety to this Tumultuous world mess. We need a Savior. Somebody's got to help us. Up steps the Antichrist and says, Here I am. I can fix this. And the world bows to him. Peace and safety. Then destruction will come upon them suddenly, like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, you're not in darkness. That the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. I love that. You are not of darkness. Look to somebody next to you and say, I am not of darkness. And now say to them, you are not of darkness. And by the way, here is one of the most exciting things to me in this whole chapter. We talked about the parallels between uh, Egypt and the plagues, and what we see here with these bowls being poured out. If you go back and read in the book of Exodus, when the darkness came that, that was dark for three days, and it was just, they could feel it. It was just so thick and so dark. It says the Israelites had light in their dwellings. So whether that's light in your house or light in this dwelling, because you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. If you are here on this earth at this point in time, you still have light. You will not be in this darkness. If I were a jump and dance and have a fit kind of person, I'd have one right now, but I'm not. So that's good stuff. Is it not? This is not cause for fear or great concern. This is a reminder, an exhortation to us. I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes. Stay alert. Don't fall prey to the idolatry. Stay pure. Keeping your clothes, not having your nakedness exposed is symbolic of those who go into idolatry and are unfaithful. They commit spiritual fornication, as it were. But we will not be surprised as this happens. Because we have the light. We are children of the light, not of darkness. They gathered together to the place which in Hebrew is called Har Megadon. It's preparation for the great battle spoken of in chapter 19. I showed you this picture last week. Har Megiddo literally means the mountain of Megiddo. All right, Several famous battles throughout the Old Testament took place here. This place is, is where the blood is going to be 4 to 5 feet high. It's, it's like 10 to 12 miles wide. It stretches for 200 miles. It's going to be cataclysmic. We'll look more at that when we get to chapter 19. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. This is another one of those proleptic statements. It's not going to be done for a couple chapters yet, but it speaks in the present tense about something that is yet to occur. The Greek, though, is even stronger than it is done. In the Greek it said, It has already occurred. No, it hasn't, but it's that certain that this battle on the great day of the Lord is one of ultimate victory for the king of kings and the Lord of lords. It is to express the great certainty with which this will happen. Flashes of lightning, peals of thunder, great earthquakes such as there has not been since man came upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it. What does the Richter scale go up to? 10? And we've seen him. I know Alaska had one that was 9.2 uh, I think we're going to need a new Richter scale when this thing shows up. It's just going to be that, that amazing. Like no one had ever seen. It was great. How oh, great. Thank you. How great was it? The great city was split into three parts. And the cities of the nations fell. Fell. Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. Now, I don't know if this is a literal city. I don't think so because the next line talks about and the cities of the nations fell. Possibly it is a city that will be referred to as Babylon. And this is a domino effect that will go on around the world. There's a lot of speculation among scholars through different periods and point in time. Oh, Babylon. Babylon, that's Rome. It's the Roman Empire. And it's the Roman Catholic Church. And then for a while it was, oh, it's literal Babylon. It's Iraq. It's, it's the Muslim system. The, the antichrist Muslim Islamic system. You know, there's another one out today. It's America. It's America. And Babylon is notorious for spilling its filth and corruption upon the rest of the world and polluting the rest of the world. It's really quiet in here right now, isn't it? Hey, if it's Rome, that's fine. And if it's literal Babylon, Iraq, that's fine. But what? America? America? I'm not saying it is America. I'm just saying let's back off a little bit from wanting to point at somebody else as to them being it. I frankly still think it's more of a a world system. God's fierce wrath is going to be poured out folks and it's not arbitrary and it's not whimsical it is in response to babylon's cup that it shares with the world this filth this pollution this immorality this anti-god system that turns people's hearts away from god it's what revelation 18:3 talks about all the nations have drunk of the wine of the passion of her babylon's immorality and the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her and the merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality. This fierce wrath that's going to be poured out is very similar to what we read in chapter 16, verse 4. They deserve it. The fierce wrath is going to be in response to the cup of immorality. And it is going to be God's justice is not blind. It is calculated. It is based on the truth of what they deserve. Every island fled away and the mountains were not found. And huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, came down from heaven upon men. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, because its plague was extremely severe. It's a real odd phrase there. And every island fled away and the mountains were not found. My personal belief, and we'll cover this more in a couple chapters, my personal belief is this is the start of the earth's great transformation to be purged and cleansed to receive the new heaven and the new earth, the new Jerusalem. The new heaven and the new earth is not coming to a garbage dump. And that's what the earth is right now. It's coming to a planet, to an earth that has been purified and purged. And I think this great earthquake and the um, islands fleeing away and the mountains not being found is the start of, and watch how this ties together. What Second Peter talks about in chapter 3. But by his word the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire. Kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Oh, there's that word again. In which the heavens will pass away with the roar of the elements. And, and the roar of the elements will be destroyed with intense heat. And the earth and its works will be burned up. That's chapter 21, 22. We'll get there. But I think this great earthquake is going to be the start of this upheaval that's going to take place on this planet to prepare it. To take it back to Garden of Eden-like circumstances. So that the new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem. Oh, and by the way, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords is coming to inhabit this place, so it better be nice. just when you thought it couldn't get any worse, it does. Huge hailstones, a hundred pounds, come and land on people. And yet still, they blaspheme. They curse God, they blame Him instead of repenting. How stunning is that, huh? We've got a little time left this morning, ten minutes or so, to to end with some worship. I don't want to leave you in this, oh
1: oh my gosh.
0: I want to take our focus back to where it belongs on the Lord, okay? And I want to encourage you. We've talked about how God is good at multitasking. We're made in his image. Connect the dots. We ought to be good at multitasking, right? Right? Okay, so you're not. Neither am I. But let's try that this morning a little bit, okay? Even as we end with a, a brief time of worship this morning, I I would like to ask you to think about some loved ones, friends, neighbors that you have who are still at that point of shaking their fist at God. The whole point of this chapter is that they would turn. They would recognize that God is still trying to get their attention. Now, this paints a picture, but it's specific to the dwellers on the earth, those who won't. My personal belief is there will be those who will. This is a wake-up call, and some will wake up even as we worship today, let's just take a few minutes to lift them up and pray that their eyes would be open, their hearts would be open to the truth. And I need the worship band out here. Otherwise, I'm going to lead us and you wouldn't want, you talk about just when it couldn't get any worse. Wow. There we go. Hi, everybody. So, would you stand please? We're going to worship and I would encourage you to lift up a person or two that you know and love that's still in the, No, no God phase of their life. The Lord would have mercy and change their hearts.